You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader of the NNO hosting this week. And with me are Colin Campbell, Will Doran, and Lynn Bonner, all also of the News and Observer. Uh, we had a busy week as the legislature finally uh, swung into gear. They had been a little bit quiet, and uh, this week um, really unloaded a lot of their ideas and uh, made those public in the form of bills. Uh, so we'll talk about those. Uh, we'll also talk about um, some of the court action uh, especially related to Governor Cooper's uh, cabinet and Senate confirmation of that cabinet. Uh, and we'll talk about how much uh, some of the new members of the Cooper administration are being paid. Uh, but let's start with bills. Uh, Lynn, you had an interesting story about a bill that has optometrists and ophthalmologists uh, at each other's throats or eyes or something. Right. Yeah, I'm just going to say eye surgeons since... Uh I uh, stumble over the longer word, but it's about uh, where, where's the line between eye surgeons and optometrists, the, uh, the medical doctors and the uh, doctors that are best known for um, examining your eyes and, and uh, prescribing glasses. Uh, the, eye sur- the eye surgeons are uh, angry about a... A proposed bill that would let um, optometrists perform some kinds of eye surgery, uh, uh, basically some laser surgeries that would correct glaucoma and um, and cataracts, and uh, some uh, surgeries uh, to remove growths around the eye. Um, they say that. Uh, Eye surgeons have gone to school and and have, uh, you know, practiced in hospitals to learn all that. While uh, optometrists would just be taking weekend courses to learn how to operate the uh, laser machines. Um, optometrists say that they there are many more of them, and uh, allowing them to do these kinds of surgeries would open up access to um, to more people and easier access to people who need uh, surgery to help them see. So uh, this these uh, scope of practice bills are are really interesting, especially when they um, uh, involve eye surgeons and optometrists. We had an optometrist who was uh, running the house some years back, Jim Black, and um, he uh, watched out for uh, his profession. Uh, pretty rigorously, and uh, eye surgeons were always trying to uh, fight back um, legislation that would would expand uh, the role of optometrists in caring for eyes. Um, Black was uh, ultimately uh, convicted uh, around a uh, political scandal uh, and spent some time in federal prison, but um, optometrists are known for uh, uh, pretty regular regular and uh, generous um, campaign contributions still, so uh, which uh, gives this bill some added flavor. I take it up. Ophthalmologists don't have a similar uh, pack, or at least one that's not quite, uh, doesn't have as much pull, maybe because there's not as many of there them? There aren't as many of them, and um, they, you know, they don't have the money to spread around. But backing up the eye surgeons is the larger um, 
organization of doctors as a whole, and they have a lot of pull in the legislature. Uh, at, but so when you add just the doctors in general, the MDs in general, to the uh, to the eye surgeons, that's where they get their heft. Okay. Well, uh, Colin, we course wouldn't have a week that would go by without HB2 uh, action and there was a fair amount of it uh, this week. Uh, we uh, found out a little more about what the um, deadline might be for losing even more events uh, and then there were some um, number of bills filed uh, to, to try to deal with with HB2. Oh, yeah, the NCAA it. thing was this week. I've almost, as, as long as this week has been in as much HB2 news as we had, I almost thought that was last week. But yeah, that was, uh, I guess, Monday we heard from the North Carolina Sports Association, which is uh, sort of sports events promoter developer groups uh, across the state uh, that try to recruit these type of uh, sporting events that have a pretty big economic impact. Um, and they put out a letter to the legislature basically saying, they need action within the next couple of weeks on repealing House Bill 2, or we're looking at uh, North Carolina not being eligible to host uh, NCAA championship events, uh, not just for the next year or two, but all the way through 2022. Um, and there are currently, I think, uh, 50-some at least um, bids that are active uh, for places like the PNC Arena here in Raleigh, the Greensboro Coliseum, and as well as some locations uh, down in Charlotte that would be impacted and would not be able to host you know, things like the uh, basketball championship uh, rounds, uh, as well as uh, lesser-known sports like, I think, riflery is one of the ones that uh, we're in the running for here in North Carolina. So that... Um, prompted uh, a sort of renewed push on HB2. Not a whole lot of response from the legislature at this point. Um, they are, are pretty consistently saying that uh, the ball is really in Governor Roy Cooper's court right now, that it's on him, not the legislature, to uh, propose some kind of compromise that's not just a simple repeal of HB2, uh, which they've said they don't have the votes for, but would be something that you could get at least a, a majority of the Republicans uh, behind to make some kind of change. Um of course, that's their take on it. Ultimately, the legislature does have a Republican supermajority in both chambers. They can pass and propose anything they want um, if they get enough votes among Republicans. It doesn't necessarily have to come from Cooper procedurally, uh, but the idea is that they want Cooper to propose something. Cooper hasn't come up with anything specific this week, uh, but we have seen some bills filed. Um, the first bill was filed actually last week and is a pretty simple uh, just repeal HB2 sort of bill filed by Senator Jeff Jackson, a Democrat from Charlotte. That has not gone anywhere yet. And then this week we had two that were filed on Thursday. One uh, seems to have the most backing among Democrats. It's got uh, a version in both the House and the Senate. It's got a number of Democrats uh, sponsoring it, and it's got the support of the two biggest uh, LGBT advocacy groups in the area, uh, the Human Rights Campaign at the national level and then Equality North Carolina here in this state. Uh, they held a press conference to promote that. That one's interesting because it's not just repeal. It's a what they are terming a statewide non-discrimination ordinance uh, that would prevent discrimination uh, in things like housing, uh, loans, uh, education, a variety of things, um, and would include categories uh, like sexual orientation and gender identity, as well as things like veteran status and some other uh, sort of categories that aren't specifically uh, laid out and protected under current law. Uh, the most fascinating part about that is that there is a public accommodations provision in there, and it pretty much spells out that while you can have gender-designated bathrooms, a uh, transgender person cannot be discriminated against in terms of public accommodations to bathrooms, which 
you could quite easily interpret as being a statewide version of the Charlotte non-discrimination ordinance that prompted HB2 because Republicans were worried that by allowing transgender people to go into the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity, that you would then open the door for sexual predators to claim transgender status and cause uh, problems in, in gender-specific bathrooms. Yeah, and you quoted a Democrat that basically said, well, Republicans are worried about uh, cities going and passing these local laws, so here's the solution. You just pass a statewide. Passing a state that level. doesn't seem to me like that would probably satisfy the Republicans' yeah, concerns. I'm, uh, you know, we didn't get a whole lot of response from Republicans on that. Uh, Senator Phil Berger's office did put out the same sort of statement that he's put out several times, that again, it's on Roy Cooper. Uh, but when the uh, spokeswoman for him sent me the statement again, this time she underlined the portion about uh, making sure that men can't go into women's bathrooms or something to that effect. So I, I think clearly they're looking at this and they're saying, this is probably not a compromise. This is actually doing what we didn't want to happen in Charlotte and taking that uh, statewide. There's a third bill that's basically the same as this one. And this is kind of interesting that there seems to be this split among Democrats and how to approach the idea of compromise with Republicans. Initially, uh, Representative Pricey Harrison of Greensboro and Representative Cecil Brockman of High Point, both Democrats, had said that they would be co-sponsoring a bill together. Uh, what we actually saw on Thursday was that the bill I was talking about that has Equality NC and, and human rights campaigns backing. Pricey Harrison was on that at that press conference. Cecil Brockman, however, files his own bill, which is the same bill, but it tacks on a section about strengthening penalties for crimes committed in bathrooms. So you would have a longer uh, prison sentence if you raped someone in a bathroom versus if it happened in another location, um, which is interesting. And it's something that's been floated in a couple of the compromise proposals over the past year. It hasn't really gone anywhere, but uh, the idea with that is to sort of assuage some of the concerns that by allowing transgender people bathroom access that you would allow other people to take advantage and commit crimes. And this would toughen the penalty for anyone who decides to do that. Uh, he did get, didn't get any backing from other Democrats on that. I think he had no co-sponsors, uh, which tells me that perhaps some of the LGBT advocacy groups had uh, decided that they didn't want that provision in there. I did see uh, someone uh, on Twitter yesterday was saying that she opposed this because she felt like that created a stigma about trans people being sexual predators uh, by including that in a bill like this. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what the reaction is to any of these bills, if any of them have a shot, and sort of how many Democrats come out specifically in favor of one or the other. Uh, we haven't heard from Governor Roy Cooper on this at all. He hasn't. He's obviously called for repeal, but he hasn't come out and specifically said this bill or that bill is the best way to do it. Okay. Well, I have a feeling he'll start being asked about which of these yeah, bills Yeah, I have a request supports. into them about that, and we'll see if we hear anything today. We'll certainly write a story about it either way, whatever we hear from them. So uh, a lot of other bills, but uh, one stood out, Will, is uh, pretty interesting about uh, what legislators are paid. And uh, these stories always draw some strong reactions on either side uh, because there's uh, some thought that legislators aren't really paid enough to, to recruit people to become legislators. And then there's some thought that, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, especially considering uh, the legislature is not the most popular uh, political body, uh, that uh, maybe they don't need to be paid anymore. So um, what are they actually proposing uh, for uh, pay? Sure. Um, I'll get to that in a second. I did want to take 30 seconds just kind of go back to what Colin was just talking oh, yeah. about, though. In, uh, in my other job with PolitiFact North Carolina, we looked into the uh, some of the claims about uh, trans people, you know, being not necessarily all trans people being sexual predators, but, you know, people using... 
uh, transgender-friendly laws to commit, uh, you know, sexual crimes in bathrooms and locker rooms and things like that. And we found that there's virtually no actual documentation of that happening. There was uh, one guy several years ago in Canada who uh, committed crimes at a shelter by pretending to be trans. But as far as we can tell, it's never actually happened in the U.S. Um, in a city that you know has this sort of trans-friendly ordinance. So I didn't want to just mention that. Um, and there's a fair amount of cities that have ordinances like Charlotte's. Yeah, uh, most of most of the biggest cities in the country have this thing. I think I think Charlotte and maybe Houston are the uh, the the two. Uh, kind of outliers among the you know the the largest cities in the U.S. without a law sort of like that. It's definitely something that is becoming more and more common in the f- past few years. Yeah, wasn't Houston? They had one, and then the the voters defeated it and took it down. Right. I think it was something like that. Which is yeah. um, one of the things we see a lot of the Republicans point to as well. There are sporting events in Houston, and Houston opted out of this. Um, but they're a slightly different situation because it was the, the voters instead of a state legislature coming in and, and overturning what the city had done. Exactly, exactly. So I just wanted to, uh, to throw that out there, and if people are interested in that, they can go to the website, read that whole fact check. It's on there. But, um, yeah, but back to teacher pay, you're right. It definitely – or not teacher pay. That's another thing that's been going on lately. <laughs> Legislative pay. Um, that is definitely something that uh, piques people's interests. and um, Especially teachers, uh, probably, <laughs> since they are uh, always hearing about their pay, uh, wondering what the legislature is going to do on their pay. Exactly, exactly. Um, Legislator pay to 50K this year? Oh, no, no. That's a teacher pay. <laughs> um, so – Actually, legislative pay could get to 50K if they pass some of these uh, proposals that they're talking about. Um, if you look at the way that legislators get paid, they actually get paid several different ways. They get an annual salary. They get monthly expense allowances. They get mileage reimbursements. And then they also get a uh, per diem, which they can use for uh, – food and you know lodging you know if you have a hotel or if you rent a place in Raleigh when you're in session um, and none of that has changed since 1994 in 94 the legislature passed a law to update some of that stuff but for the 22 years 23 years I guess since then it's been uh, you know no races totally stagnant um, so this uh, new bill proposed, it wouldn't change their annual salary or their um, expense allowances. Those would stay the same. But it would basically double their mileage rate, uh, bring it up to 2015 levels, and also give them uh, higher uh, per diem stipends for food and hotels and stuff like that. Um, and it would bring the per diems up from $104 a day to $164 a day, um, which, you know, if it goes for 200, 250 days multiplied by 170 legislators. You're looking at, you know, millions of extra dollars in state spending uh, for that change, even though it's just $60 a day. Um, what do they make uh, total right now when you add all that up? I, I believe typically they make somewhere between thirty and $40,000 a year. Um, in 2015, when they were, the, the last time that they were here uh, for a long budget session, uh, the average legislator actually made around $48,000, um, which is why I said earlier that if these changes go into effect, you could see them making fifty. Um, and uh, the reactions from this have been kind of interesting. A lot of uh, just, you know, kind of normal people <laughs> that, I, that I've seen reacting to this, you know, online or emailing me since the stories come out have been kind of opposed to it, either saying no way or saying, you know, 
some variation of, well, let's see them repeal HB2 and then we can talk about the raises or, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of hesitant to, uh, you know, to give the legislators uh, much credit for this. But you see a lot of people who work in state government or, you know, who are, you know, lobbyists or policy wonks and things like that um, or professors who are fans of the idea because uh, the thought is that if you pay people more for being in the legislator, it, legislature, it opens up opportunities to hold, you know, extra classes of people and, you know, it's not just the wealthy who can afford to run for office. If I could weigh in for a second, um, I've heard that argument, but there was a study recently that said that paying people or legislators more does not necessarily get more middle class people to run for office. Did you stumble across that? I, I think I read that maybe a couple months ago. Um, I'm not sure about that one in particular. Actually, one of the uh, the sponsors of this bill, uh, Pat Hurley from Ashboro, pointed me to a uh, kind of a different study uh, from, I think it was Colorado, that found that um, paying legislators more uh, maybe had like a, a small effect of increasing the number of people who ran, but uh, it didn't really find any, you know, it didn't find that people were necessarily flocking <laughs> to sign up as candidates. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that you um, have essentially a part-time legislature. So they aren't there year-round, uh, but they're there enough of the time that it's hard to hold down a lot of types of jobs uh, that require you to be there year-round. Um, so you get a lot of retirees and a lot of lawyers that can take four or five or six months out of the year to be in Raleigh um, and then can find stuff to do and make money the rest of the time. But people who have, you know, 40-hour-a-week jobs with two weeks of vacation are not going to find themselves in a position to sign up and run for legislature and be out of town a good chunk of the time. Yeah, especially for people who are, you know, in the, you know, the far eastern and the far western parts of the state, you know, for people who are, you know, within an hour or so of Raleigh, it's not a big deal because it's pretty easy to pop over and, you know, you can, you know, get back to your day job and your family. But, you know, if you're from, you know, on the mountains, then, you know, uh, you know, maybe that's a consideration. So. Anybody else want to weigh in on any other <clears throat> interesting bills that we had this week? If not, I can just run through them. But if you, you guys uh, wrote about anything you want to uh, highlight uh, as uh, as getting started this week. Um, um, yeah, you go ahead and run through them. But uh, we'll, we'll put the caveat on all the bills we've written about this week is that we're really early in the session. Stuff's getting filed. Some stuff is going to move forward because it has supportive leadership. And some stuff, even if it's filed by Republicans, um, may not go anywhere. And the story about the bill being filed may be the last we ever hear about it. And a lot of times we include in some of these stories that uh, these were filed in previous years and didn't really go anywhere, either either uh, you know got killed at some yeah, step. you, you got to love the really persistence of some of these legislators. They, they may file a bill. Uh, it goes nowhere, and they'll file it again and again every session to get it out there that that's what they want to do, even if they don't get any sort of buy-in or any sort of progress on it. Uh, one in that, maybe in that category, was uh, a bill that was uh, we wrote about yesterday that uh, allows people to concealed carry weapons, specifically handguns, um, without a permit. Uh, and there was something last year that would have been a constitutional amendment that would have done something very similar. Uh, that bill was filed this week. Uh, we have a bill that's moving along that would shrink the UNC Board of Governors, which is 30-some members right now. So it's, uh, some people see it as uh, somewhat unwieldy. Uh, so they're considering uh, that. Um, Colin, you wrote about a, uh, a bill to uh, require the legislature to set aside uh, more money uh, in savings and uh, 
uh, Will, you wrote about uh, the bill that would uh, uh, basically reduce regulation on uh, craft brewers. Uh, so we had a lot out there. Um, but uh, we'll go ahead and take a break, I think, and come back and talk a little bit about some of the other news this week out of, uh, out of the courts. Stay with us. In 50 feet, turn left. Why are you driving so slowly? After a few drinks, I'm taking it slow. Well, you're not fooling the cop behind you. What? Get ready to pay in point one miles. <sighs> Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. And we're back with Domecast. Uh, this is Jordan Schrader, and uh, with me are Colin Campbell, Will Dorn, and Lynn Bonner. Uh, so, Colin, uh, one of the big pieces of news this week was uh, Senate confirmation uh, of uh, Roy Cooper's cabinet appointees. Uh, what happened with that uh, with that law? Yeah, so that was uh, an interesting sort of legal drama, and it's one that uh, is, I think, underway uh, in a Wake County courtroom um, as we record this on uh, midday Friday, uh, where they're uh, having a hearing on, on this lawsuit. So this is the law that basically requires that Roy Cooper's cabinet appointees uh, have confirmation hearings in the Senate and then be voted on uh, by the Senate to confirm that they'll be holding those positions. It's very similar to uh, what we see at the federal level and it's been going through the last couple of weeks for uh, Donald Trump's administration. Um, and at the state level, this was passed as part of this special yeah, session this was where the they special tried to session. limit Roy Cooper's powers yeah. after he got elected, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the courts have been deciding what to do about this uh, meanwhile, the Senate had been going ahead with a, a cabinet uh, hearing schedule. They set a schedule uh, within the last week, and they were scheduled to hold their first on uh, Wednesday with uh, Larry Hall, the pick for Secretary of Military and Veterans Affairs and a, a former legislator himself. Um, but the court ruled the night before to put that on hold until this hearing was scheduled on Friday today. Um, so that created this interesting sort of sideshow of, well, what's going to happen when this hearing is scheduled? Um, and a lot of us had thought that because there was a court order saying that it couldn't be a hearing, uh, that there wasn't going to be one, that the meeting would be canceled. And instead we went to the, it was the insurance and regulatory committee in the Senate that was holding this hearing or was scheduled to, they still held the meeting. So they stood around and waited 10 minutes. And then the, the chairman got up and said, well, uh, I guess we've given Mr. Hall time to, uh, if he's stuck in traffic to get down here, they even had like a, a seat set up for him with his name on it. Um, but of course he did not show up, um, because the court order, uh, gave him the ability to not show up to this. Um, and they had a statement out about, um, essentially their opposition to, to what the court was doing and putting the law on hold. And, um, then just adjourn the meeting from there. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that in this court hearing today, if there's going to continue the um, blocking of this particular law or if things were, will change along the way. But certainly as as soon as the Senate gets the ability, if they get, get the ability uh, to hold these hearings, they're going to be going ahead with them um, and are, are eager to do so. And as part of that, I think it was part of the same law, but definitely the part, same special session, uh, legislators uh, changed uh, the election board makeup. So this is the... Uh, other uh, law that's in contention right now from the special session in December, and this one uh, takes the uh, elections board, which has always uh, in the last few years been 
uh, a majority of appointees from the governor's party. So it was majority Republican under Pat McCrory. It would have been uh, majority Democrat under Roy Cooper um, and changes it to the uh, combined Ethics Commission and Elections Board uh, with the composition of the Ethics Commission, which is a bipartisan board. It's an even split among uh, Democrats and Republicans. And to get anything done, you kind of have to have a three-fourths majority of members voting in support. So you really have to get uh, people of both parties on board in order to do really anything as a board. Um, and so Cooper has sued to say that that's unconstitutional, that that uh, takes away some of the powers that he's had, uh, sort of diluting his influence. Um, that had been put on hold pending a court case that had a next hearing scheduled, I think, in March. Uh, but then the legislature appealed that to the North Carolina Court of Appeals, uh, late Thursday, they ruled that um, it should be reinstated until uh, the court action is completed. So that meant that uh, effectively the changes that were blocked before they were supposed to go into effect on January 1st are now in, in effect. Um, Cooper very quickly appealed that decision to the NC Supreme Court, uh, where as of uh, midday Friday, they're still awaiting a decision as to whether the, um, the blocking will be reinstated and will go back to having... Uh, the status quo with this law on hold until the next hearing. So a lot of confusion about that. Interesting enough, the interestingly enough, uh, the ethics commission, which would eventually become the election board under this law, had their regularly scheduled meeting uh, Friday morning and apparently had to adjourn for a while because they weren't sure what kind of board they were. Uh, they didn't know if they were supposed to be operating under the new law and that they're the elections board or if they were still operating under the old law. They were hoping to hear from the Supreme Court before their meeting. I don't think they did. Uh, so that uh, created some confusion from them. Uh, worth noting that um, Cooper may find a better uh, audience for himself and his claims in the Supreme Court, which is now majority Democrat uh, justices, uh, as opposed to the North Carolina Court of Appeals, which has a majority of Republican judges currently. Uh, and that's the, the court that ruled in favor of the legislators uh, in this lawsuit. So that's another one to watch. So lo lots of going on uh, out of the special session and uh, lots of the action in, in courtrooms, as seems to be the case in politics these days. Well, well you had a good tweet about that this morning about uh, Trump's uh, comment about, uh, I'll see you in court, referring to the immigration decision. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just, you know, kind of a, a greeting between politicians these yeah. days. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's no longer a threat. It's just, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, see you in court. Yeah, we'll, we'll all be there tomorrow <laughs> and we'll probably be there the day after because that's where this stuff gets settled down. I think that's what Governor Cooper said, didn't he? When he, uh, uh, when the legislature passed all this package of of laws to limit him? Didn't yeah, he, didn't it was he at say, that I'll press conference. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was oh. a gray, rainy day, and he yeah. was, I'll see you. I don't I don't think he was speaking in all caps at the time. That's not really his Roy style. Roy Cooper doesn't really speak in no. all caps. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's I, not I, bombastic. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, real quick, Colin. So um, these cabinet members can all take office, right? They all and have most taken of them office, have, right? with the exception there there are two cabinet members that. Cooper has not appointed yet, and those are for the sort of lower-profile offices of Secretary of Revenue and Secretary of Information Technology, IT. Um, those, I'm not sure what the holdup is on appointing those. Everybody else was appointed with, uh, several weeks ago, and all of them have taken office um, and can essentially serve until or unless uh, the Senate were to go ahead with this process and decided that any of these people were unfit for office. I've heard from some of the Republicans who say they think that uh, even with this process, most of these people are likely to be perfectly fine, but they want the opportunity to, to vet them, to look at any potential uh, financial conflicts of interest, looking at their um, disclosure forms and, and that sort of thing, and, and making sure that they're you know willing to uphold the law as passed by the legislature, even though they may be uh, Democrats who might personally uh, disagree with, with some of what uh, North Carolina law has to say. 
so we'll see where that goes from there. But for now, yeah, uh, all these people are in place. They're uh, in the process of building out their staff. We've seen some departures among McCrory um, administration uh, department leaders uh, who had been sticking around for the first couple weeks after the transition. Those people are, are slowly getting replaced by uh, appointments and hires from the new folks. But uh, this transition is uh, starting to wind down now in terms of the um, sort of upheaval of different people taking over departments. And what are they being paid? We found that out this week, too. Yeah, so we looked at um, the pay from Roy Cooper. This was an interesting one. When the cabinet hires were initially announced, um, I think we had asked for salary information and didn't immediately get it um, from the Cooper administration folks. And that prompted um, Senator Wesley Meredith during one of his, uh, his comments during the uh, confirmation hearing that wasn't this week uh, to say that he felt like the information was not being publicly disclosed. It has been disclosed now and had been up for several weeks in the, the database that is on our website of state employee salaries, which if you're ever curious about how much any state employee, no matter how high or low makes, it's a great resource to, to look at at newsobserver.com and gets updated once a month. That had most of the salaries in there. We got the Cooper administration folks to confirm that those were indeed the salaries. And for most of the cabinet officials, uh, in the Cooper administration, they have identical salaries to what uh, their predecessor in the McCrory administration was making, uh, and that includes the Secretary of Administration, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary of National and Cultural Resources, Public Safety, Environmental Quality. Uh, all those folks are, are making what they're the last person made in the same job. And how uh, much is that? That is, uh, it kind of varies between positions. So, like, for example, uh, Secretary of Administration makes 130935 a year. Health and Human Services is 142000 a year. Um, but then there are two uh, positions where the Cooper appointee is making substantially more than the person before them, and that's the Secretary of Transportation, who is Jim Trogdon now. Trogdon is being paid $195,000 a year. Uh, prior to him, Nick Tennyson, who held the job under McCrory, was making 138000 a year. So that's about a 50-plus K a year raise. Uh, so same. some of these cabinet members are making more than the governor then. Uh, yeah, so, so the governor only makes, I think, in somewhere in the 140000 range. Uh, so these people are paid more. Uh, and then the other person who had a, a substantial raise over their predecessor is the budget director, uh, Charlie Perusi. He's making um, 195000 as well. Uh, Drew Heath, who had the job under McCrory, was making 145000 uh, And both Perusi and um, Trogdon have pretty extensive experience in state government. Uh, Perusi's coming over from the UNC system, where I suspect he may have had a fairly uh, substantial salary over there. So that may be part of the reasoning behind that. Uh, Trogdon, I think, may have been doing some private sector work after retiring from DOT. So that may be the reason that uh, they had to throw in some extra incentives uh, for that hire. Uh, but other than that, uh, most of the um, cabinet officials and then some of the uh, the top aides in the governor's office are, are making comparable to, to what they're uh, the previous person made, uh, with another exception, as I'm looking at this, the deputy legal counsel um, in the governor's office is being paid 128,000. Uh, McCrory's deputy legal counsel was only being paid 81,000. Uh, so that's the the only big difference there. Um, other one notable is that the uh, communications director is is apparently a higher paid position now than it was. Uh, Sadie uh, Weiner, who's the head of the communications for uh, Cooper, is making 125,000. Uh, Josh Ellis, who is the the top spokesman for McCrory, was making 107. Uh, so that's sort of the, the differences there. I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, reaction from Republicans on these salaries. Um, 
the legislature a number of years back uh, gave the governor a little bit more flexibility in, in setting the pay for uh, cabinet officials and, and some of these other folks within the, the budget he has given. Um, so there hadn't been much outcry about this, but uh, certainly nothing compared to what we saw with uh, McCrory back when he was uh, filling out his administration in 2013 and had gotten some flack for a couple of really young campaign staffers who were uh, in, put in some higher paid jobs uh, early on in his administration. Uh, not so much criticism of, of this that we've seen so far. All right. Well, I think we'll uh, take a break and come back and do headliner of the week. Stay with us. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council. Your headliner of the week. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. And welcome back. It is time for headliner of the week, where we talk about the most important or interesting person in this week's news. Uh, Colin, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to go with a. Um Animal headliner of the week, lapdogs. Uh, there was an interesting bill filed this week by Representative Garland Pierce, who is a Democrat from Scotland County, fairly lower profile legislator, but uh, he put this bill out this week uh, to take a issue with a, a distracted driving practice that we don't hear as much about, and that's people who drive with their pets in their lap. Um, he views that as sort of a distracted driving issue that could cause some safety issues if the uh, dog were to distract the driver and they had an accident or if the dog got spooked and jumped out the window of the car and then the dog is in the middle of traffic and it endangered themselves. Uh, so his bill would make it illegal and a $100 fine for anyone caught uh, driving with a live animal in their lap. So not just dogs, but if you were to drive around with a pig or a chicken or a snake or anything like that that was in your lap and not in you know safely secured in the passenger seat or the back seat, um, you would be subject to a $100 fine. So for, for that uh, interesting bill that's uh, gotten a fair amount of attention this week, I don't know if it'll end up going anywhere in, in this year's legislature, I'm going to go with lapdogs. Okay, lapdogs for the always reliable uh, animal bills. Uh, always a lot of fun to write and read about. Well, uh, I, I'm curious, does it apply to shoulders? You know, if we had like a pirate impersonator who was driving around with a pair on his shoulder. Yeah, what it's is specific the, uh... about laps, I think. So yeah. maybe if you have it in a different part of your body, you might be okay. Like um, a squirrel on your head or something yeah, like that. Um, or if you know, I don't know if there are bugs that got on you while you oh, were <laughs> driving around uh, and, and distracted you that way, then that might be okay. But uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I don't know if there's some loopholes there that, uh, that Representative Pierce is going to have to look at. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's any uh, exemption for um, disabilities or for anybody who has. Yeah, a, I don't know if, if there's anyone who has a service dog or therapy dog who has to be on their lap at all times. Um, I mean, certainly this doesn't affect if you have the dog in the passenger seat or the back seat mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. hanging out the window. I don't think they're they're impacted by this bill. Hmm. Okay. All right. So lap dogs. Uh, I, is way in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Will, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, my headliner is someone that I'm pretty sure none of our listeners have heard of before. Um, it is Bill McLaughlin. He is a librarian from Charlotte. 
Um, and he's my headliner because um, he was the winner of a poetry contest that Nicholas Kristof, the well-known New York Times columnist, held. Um, and uh, so Kristof wrote his most uh, recent column. He wanted people to uh, send in uh, poems about President Donald Trump. And he, uh, the winner was Mr. McLaughlin. Um, so uh, librarians uh, representing here, I, I can read the little limerick that he wrote. Please if, do, uh, please do. If we're interested in that. All right, so here we go. And I, I believe this qualifies as a limerick if I'm remembering my, you know, high school English class correctly. The Republican man of the hour is a wellspring of bluster and glower. Trump is rich and he's white. How's he leading the fight against establishment power? All right. Bill McLaughlin in the hat for headliner of the week uh, on the basis of his uh, poem about President Trump. We've got uh, lapdogs and librarians. Uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick the Business Roundtable, specifically because this week they released a report on on elementary student literacy, and uh, some uh, CEOs in North Carolina are using it to talk about and ampl- amplify some Duke research that shows that um, NC Pre-K, the state's... Uh, uh, preschool for four-year-olds has lasting effects, and uh, they tie um, literacy and uh, and reading skills to um, high school uh, graduation and preparation for college and careers. So um, I'm going to give uh, the uh, business roundtable my my uh, my vote and support for uh, headliner this week. Okay. Business Roundtable on Pre-K. Pre-K was actually in the news a little bit uh, uh, a couple times this week because we had the Emerging Issues Forum that we had a reporter go cover, and it was all about uh, Pre-K and how it uh, could uh, benefit the economy. So we we heard several things about that from business leaders this week. Uh, So we have librarians, lapdogs, and business leaders all in the hat. Uh, One specific librarian, I should say, Bill McLaughlin. Um, I'm going to go with lapdog, uh, lapdogs this week. I don't know how you could resist. Uh, and, uh, I do remember, uh, going on a long drive and having to have my dog in the passenger seat and, uh, he doesn't like rumble strips. So he would sometimes jump into my, my lap. So I gotta, I gotta remember if this passes. Yeah. To, to, uh, and I wonder if you can, that. can you blame it on the dog? If you get pulled over like, well, like I, I told him to sit in the passenger seat, but he mm-hmm. jumped in there, and you know I couldn't get him away. Mm-hmm. He wasn't wearing his seatbelt, so um, yeah. Uh, I think you're a pretty bad pet owner if you snitch on your own dog, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, getting him to pay the hundred dollar fine might be a little tricky, but you know, he might be able to raid your wallet and <laughs> chew it up and take it down to the police station. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, lap dogs are our headliner of the week. Uh, we'll look for more uh, opportunities to spotlight animals as the uh, uh, Domecast goes on this session. Um, one last thing before we go, um, Colin has actually been two-timing us on this podcast and going on another podcast. 
that we should uh, give a good plug to. Uh, so, Colin, what is that? Yeah, so I've been involved with uh, helping our uh, friends in the McClatchy, Washington Bureau start uh, what's kind of like a, a national politics version of Domecast. It's a weekly look at national news uh, with a, a team of uh, political reporters, both in, in D.C. and around the country. It's called Beyond the Bubble. Uh, you can search for it on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, any other uh, podcast apps should have it. Uh, the host is Kristen Roberts, who's the executive editor of our uh, Washington, D.C. Bureau. Uh, I'm one of the panelists to give a little North Carolina political angle in there. Uh, Patty Mazay of the Miami Herald is on it as well, as well as some folks who cover the White House. Uh, in this week's episode, we go into some of the latest uh, Trump administration news uh, and, and some other good stuff. So definitely take a listen to that if you enjoy this podcast and want to get some national podcasts uh, into your uh, feed of what you listen to every week. And there's probably a glut of national podcasts about national political news, but this one kind of sounds interesting because it takes a look at uh, national news from the lens of yeah, people sort of, outside uh, in the McClatchy markets. Uh, yeah, where, and that's McClatchy the reason I'm on it is I'm certainly no expert on the Trump administration, but uh, the, the goal is to have uh, those of us who are political reporters in, in particularly battleground states to go on and, and sort of explain how some of these national events are, are playing among voters and uh, people in politics at the local level. So it's a it's an interesting way to view uh, national politics for sure. All right. Well, go listen to it and uh, keep listening to us at Domecast. So catch us next week. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 